Why is the Pentagon so interested in the food that we eat? Our next guest, Michelle Kleiger, is going to help us answer that question. She's also going to help us explore some other questions regarding food security. Why is food so personal, cultural? Why do we bond over a meal and build relationships in ways over food that we don't in any other way? What are the challenges when we talk about growing food, when we talk about the distribution of it? What are the weak points? Michelle is an economist, but she's also worked in international trade and she deeply understands agriculture. She's also the host of a podcast called The Grower and The Economist. And she walks us through these challenges and the solutions in a way that is realistic. She has some very interesting approaches that we should all consider when we think about the perspectives, the ethics, and what is the right thing to do with the food that we feed our families for and the best way that we can achieve food security. We are five meals away from anarchy. So if you were to think about what you would do if you hadn't eaten a meal in five days or someone that you loved hadn't eaten a meal in five days, like I'm pretty sure that you would break into a store or something worse. And that's quick. That's like two days, right, of starvation before you become desperate. GovCon different. Ideas from the outside apply to GovCon to drive change. Michelle, it is good to talk with you again. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, we are too, and this issue of food security is something that I'm really interested in learning more about. And to kind of get us started to set the stage a little bit, I wanted to share a story with you that might be familiar. Years ago in 1989, President Boris Yeltsin had visited the United States. And at this point, he's actually not President Yeltsin. He is a parliament member in the Soviet Union. And this is two years before the Berlin Wall falls. And he's on a visit with NASA, and he's in Houston area, Houston, Texas. And he says to the folks that are giving him a tour, he says, I want to check out a grocery store. I want to see an American grocery store. So they take them to a local grocery store in Houston. And as they walk through the produce aisle, he is amazed. Apples, oranges, grapefruits, you name it, it is there and in great abundance. He's enamored with the frozen food aisle. And apparently he loved this idea of pudding pops. Imagine that, jello pudding pops. But everywhere he goes, he sees salmon, he sees trout, he sees poultry, endless amounts of beef. Obviously, you're in Texas. And at one point, he's shaken by it. And he says to somebody, what what have you done to me? And what he means is, of course, in the Soviet Union, he recognizes just how far behind they are compared to the United States. And I think of that story, and this is 1989, and I think about, and this was before Yeltsin became president, if we could transport President Yeltsin back now, and of course he's deceased, but if we could transport him to 2022 and show him, if I go into a Whole Foods, as you know, or if you go into a Walmart super center, I mean, it's unbelievable. We have 38 types of peanut butter, and I'm probably low. You could probably double that number. So when we talk about food security, Michelle, I think some people would say, is there really an issue? I mean, why are we concerned about this? So I'd love to get your thoughts on food security and why this is a, a matter that we need to be concerned about in the United States. Absolutely. I um, I think the first piece that going to your story is that is the world that a lot of us see and that maybe we don't have to think about food security anymore. We have food. It's always available. It's largely affordable. There's diversity. Um, but I think that as we dive in in this conversation, it's amazing how many weak points are in that chain mm -hmm. um, to get the food from the farm to us at that price. Mm -hmm. And also just the little things that happen in life that kind of show us where maybe there's not quite as much food security, that there's not 
as much depth to that grocery store yeah. as it looks like. Like, is it partly a mirage? Huh. Um, and I guess the first place I think it probably to start would be just defining for food. Great security. question. I was going to ask you, can we start with that? Great. A great thought. Of course. And I think that again, in the last months, years, especially with the pandemic, like this question of what is food security and all of its different iterations is becoming more popular. Um, so food security is the availability of food and individuals access to it. Mm -hmm. So as an economist, that covers both the supply and the demand mm -hmm. side. When we talk about availability, we're talking about the supply of quality, culturally appropriate, balanced, diverse, nutritious, and safe food. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm guessing that um, Boris had in that story was he probably couldn't imagine that Americans can walk into a grocery store and not worry about what they're eating. Yeah. Is there anything in that store that's going to truly make them sick? Mm -hmm. And on the demand side, we're talking about um, that access piece, individuals access to food. So do people have the money? Do they have access? Are there grocery stores or other places to buy food? Do they have the transportation to get mm -hmm. there? Do they have the tools and skills to prepare the food. Mm -hmm. um, and so that all of those factors come together to create a holistic view of food security. Yeah. And I kind of have been playing with the uh, phrase from field to mouth. Like we need to get it all the way from a farm of whatever that looks like uh -huh. to somebody's ability to eat it. Okay. So, and before we talk about from field to mouth, and that's that's an interesting way of phrasing it. I want to go back on a couple areas that you mentioned there. One is you talked about weak points and the mirage. And if I think about it, and Cliff and I were just talking before you came on, and actually right before you came on, I was talking about how old I look these days in the morning, but that was a different conversation. Before that, <laughs> we were talking about, you know, even in COVID, and we're, what, two and a half years in almost in this global pandemic, you know, maybe sometimes, Michelle, there wasn't the, the type of bread that I wanted. But for the most part, we always had still tremendous access to food. So really interested in your thoughts on what some of the, from a mirage point of view, what are some of those weak points that maybe we don't always fully recognize in America, this land of abundance? Well, the first obvious one is the for the 40 to 50 million people that are food insecure mm -hmm. every day including one in seven to one in ten children um, so people that do not have enough money to purchase food or ways to get mm -hmm. it um, you know with the payments in the last year and with advanced snap because of the um, pandemic, we actually saw childhood poverty drop by 40%. Mm. Um, so that um, one, not being able to purchase, I think is a big piece. Yeah. Those individuals also being able to get to a grocery store, your your conversation about Austin. Mm. Um, I If you are don't live near a grocery store or somewhere that sells fresh produce, how many buses are you going to take in Austin? in the summer yeah. and try to get ice cream or milk or food, like you know, produce and get it back to your house. Mm -hmm. So like there is a huge section of the population that doesn't have that access. Um, and there are lots of places where there aren't grocery stores. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is one place. And we saw it when schools closed down, we didn't have a way to get kids free and reduce lunches mm -hmm. and breakfast. Um, and that's a challenge in the summer, yeah. but for, for, you know, the rest of the population that does have enough money. Um, there are a few places, I think, where we can see those points in the pandemic. One, we saw meat prices go up mm. very quickly in the beginning mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Um, there, especially in beef and pork processing, there are several plants that account for individually 5% of all beef or pork produced right. when they went offline because of COVID illnesses or several years ago, there was a fire. Mm -hmm. um, that's taking out 5% of meat production in the United States. Yeah. And that, that causes prices to go up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So just that concentration. 
Now, I would say he's a big now piece. that I'll tell you, I have noticed the my wife, Beth, let's say three years ago, she would go to the store and it's one of those trips where everybody's working and you haven't really gone to do a full shopping trip in weeks. You know, you're going for these little visits. And I would say typically, Michelle, we're a family of four that that would be a four hundred dollar visit for us. Just recently, Beth went and it was well over seven hundred bucks. We couldn't believe it. So when you talked about meat prices and all of that, all of a sudden you have me backtracking a little bit from, hey, COVID, I didn't seem to notice much. You're right. Prices have gone through the roof. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it just reminded me of that. No. Right. So a price is definitely, I would say, and I, I don't know that there's a good, <laughs> I don't know that there's a good reason that we're going to see prices drop more, mm. um, you know, or revert at all. Um, and, you know, I guess the next place would be, you know, to go would be that in the next few months, there's a lot of projections that wheat prices are going to be be very high. Right. They are already at near record levels um, and they will increase. And so that global food supply is great from food security, because if there's a disruption in one place, we can purchase food from others. Obviously, the problem with the pandemic was that we um, you know, shut down everywhere in the whole world at once. So that created, there was no place to get things mm -hmm. from. Um, but with Ukraine and the Black Sea being a huge producer of grains, um, that supply being taken offline right now could continue to push wheat prices higher. Right. And yeah. something that I hadn't really thought of before the last six weeks is that Russia is a huge supplier of fertilizer. Mm. And if that fertilizer goes offline, what does that do to yields around the world? Mm. And now you're cutting the supply because you don't have this import. Mm -hmm. You don't have this Im important input. And therefore, that is jeopardizing the amount of food we produce altogether. You know, it's it's such an enormous issue. And I've obviously, we've all been following what's going on in Ukraine. And I was unaware of indeed how much the harvest in Ukraine of wheat affected the rest of us. But it seems to me you talked about some of the weak points when we look at food security. And you've mentioned a few where that's access. It could be money. You may not have a car. It can be global things. If we look in the U.S., what are a couple of the other real priorities that that folks just don't really grasp that these are critical and they're critical weak points to sort of the food security system? I would take it on the other side now. So I think historically we've always been worried about not producing enough food, mm -hmm. not having enough food. Mm -hmm. um, and today, um, obesity and rising health care costs are often directly tied to what we're eating. Right. And so... Um, maybe it's that we have enough food or people have enough food, but they might not have a balanced, diverse or nutritious diet. Mm. And that does go back to the transportation piece. You might be able to get, you know, shelf stable products from your corner grocery store or bodega, um, but you can't, you know, travel to get to that produce. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely say that obesity and health related costs, you know, and those health related costs associated with it are a serious implication, both on the individual level and on the, you know, society level. Those costs of healthcare are expensive, but you also have productivity losses on people not being healthy enough to work, sure. not sure. being able to do those physically demanding jobs if you're not healthy enough to do them. Right. And then hunger has serious cognitive impact. Um, and so as a society, we are shifting to a world where we need higher skilled and higher knowledge jobs. Well, in order to have those jobs, you have to, you know, be using your brain and sure. you have to develop. And so, so a couple thoughts when we talk about obesity and of course, the numbers in the United States, I think, Michelle, are at historic highs as far as you know, folks that are overweight and so forth. When you think of the abundance of food that we have, yet I get there are access challenges, whatever, and obesity, that strikes some people as perhaps a contradiction. 
And I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And also the thought of, is there an educational element in there? And I'll give you an example. Uh, I've got a lot of folks where I grew up, buddies that I still hang out with today. And some of my good friends, their diets are awful. It was kind of just a household thing. You know, they ate hot dogs and Doritos and they still do. And so is it an educational cultural piece as well? Kind of curious your thoughts on some of that. For the first one, how do we live in a world of abundance and yet still not have enough food or healthy diets, I think was yeah, the first yeah, yeah. question. Yeah. And the, the I talked a couple of weeks ago with a food cooperative in Iowa, mm -hmm. and then I had a follow-up conversation with a farmer in Illinois. And the Iowa food cooperative said that we live in, you know, the area with some of the best agricultural soil in the mm. world. And we import 90% of our food. Like apples used to be grown in Iowa wow. in the wow. 1900s. And now it is corn, soybeans, hogs, and some chickens. Uh -huh. And when wow. I mentioned that to the farmer in Illinois, he's like, this isn't a contest I want to win. But our number is closer to 95%. So in these places that can grow tons of food for humans to mm -hmm. eat, um, they are not. And those places are being bringing in food from other places. So like, I think that dichotomy and it was popular with food bank pictures. I, there was one from the beginning of the pandemic where there was like a line of cars at the beginning of the pandemic in Minnesota, cornfields on either side, and these people that just didn't know where to get food. I remember. From. And so yeah. that image really sticks with me of how there's this mirage to that grocery store. Like it exists, but it takes a lot of finagling, maybe. Yeah. So that's a great point. And I want to just go a little bit deeper on that. Why is it? So that's such an interesting story when you talk to the farmers in Iowa or Illinois, and we have all of this capability, why are we bringing in food from everywhere else? What are the root causes of that, Michelle? Um, so the, um, I mean, we've seen the areas um, have continued to move towards more coin, sorry, more corn, and then more recently soybeans. And there's a lot of reasons that this mm -hmm. happens. Um, and I think that it is largely rational for each individual farmer, but on the whole, it creates problems. And so, you know, corn has had a lot of government support as early as the 1930s. Mm -hmm. There was talk about corn ethanol. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is this, you know, constant market for corn. And then there's more research money put into growing it um, and into breeding it. And so we have over time, we have seen investment in corn and soybeans, and so we see better yields. Mm -hmm. And when we see better yields, right, we continue to grow yeah. it. So around yeah. that, we have government supports, whether direct payments in the past or crop insurance, which reduces the risk a lot. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of diverse markets to sell into. So you can store your crop, you can sell it to an elevator, you can buy futures contracts. There are lots of options. So there's a lot less risk from that perspective. And over time, it's gotten mechanized. So you can harvest a lot of fields with very little effort. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the yields you can increase with with uh, chemistry. So if you're applying the fertilizer we talked to about, talked about, or herbicides right. or pesticides, one person can drive in a tractor or a combine and they can take care of a lot of acres. And so it is, it has gotten more and more efficient, but to get more and more efficient, it continues to get bigger. And so what happens is, is there's growing anything else has a lot higher risk for an individual. Mm -hmm. They either need to be a lot better, they need to use a lot more labor, they need to be able to bear the risk that you can't sell your product to anyone all of the time. And so these industries have you know, grown and as we invest more in corn and soybeans, we're investing less in other things. And the opportunity cost of growing apples in Iowa is just not nearly the money you can make on corn. You know, 
before we started the show, Cliff was saying to me that he's read stories and he's watched documentaries about massive amounts of food in some of these areas actually being thrown away, discarded, that there is tremendous waste. And is that the case? And is that also one of the sort of byproducts of what you're talking about? Some of these subsidies and so forth that we're producing so much that there isn't a market for it, that it just goes to waste. Curious your thoughts on that. I mean, so corn and soybeans, we've continued to create more markets. Mm -hmm. So with corn, um, about 40% is used for animal feed domestically. And then I would say 30% is exported to the rest of the world for animal feed and 30% into ethanol. Mm -hmm. um, so there is homes for all of okay. it. Um, at some point, maybe not, but we've, you know, continued to increase supply and we've continued to find more markets and both on the corn and soybean side, you know, there is a lot of effort to continue to expand those mm -hmm. markets. Um, yes, I would say that food waste is a problem post-harvest food race. That number I think is up to about 40%. So when stuff leaves the field, it is not eaten, whether it's thrown out in our houses, whether it's thrown out at a you know, banquet hall, whether it, there's a, you know, semi that breaks down and the refrigeration goes, you know, is broken and you lose the whole truck, like lots of reasons that mm -hmm. we have a lot of food waste. So I think that is a place that people want to target in how we can be a more sustainable, respectful, you know, efficient industry right. is, can we reduce that food waste? Um, yeah. Does that answer no, no, that it does. And before we move to this notion of field to mouth, because I think we're going over a lot of the challenges and to be very candid, some of these challenges I have not really thought through again, because, hey, I go to the store, I have my car, I, I get what I, I want. But from a national security point of view, I get from a citizen welfare, but from a national security point of view, why would perhaps the DOD or the Pentagon be so interested in this issue? And also with that said, you mentioned this aspect of distribution systems and there are weak points. So that's a one, two, but I'd really curious your thoughts on why from a national security perspective, does this matter? And then secondly, what are some of the weak points in this distribution? Because as you're going through that, I typically just think, Hey, it's in the store. I don't think about all that goes on to get it to the store. So the original national security reason reason has been known for thousands of years. The ancient Chinese and Egyptian governments both had grain stores that when there were famines, they released food to the population. So we have reserves of lots of food that if there are food um, crises or famines that can be released, just like strategic oil reserves, mm -hmm. right? And other countries do too. China does. Um, when they, when there was a disease, African swine fever a couple of years ago that, um, forced them to call 20, 50% of the Chinese pig herd, which is, which China accounts for 50% of the world. So 25% of all pigs in the world were called because wow. of this disease. Yeah. The prices went up a lot. And especially at holidays, the Chinese government took meat out of freezers to give to people. Mm -hmm. So people that do not eat and people that cannot afford food um, are not particularly stable citizens. I've heard, um, I don't even know where the quote is from. I have heard people from the DOD say it. I have heard senators say it, but we are five meals away from anarchy. So if you were to think about what you would do if you hadn't eaten a meal in five days or someone that you loved hadn't eaten a meal in five days, like how do you go from you right now sitting, you know, in front of mm -hmm. a computer, having a podcast to not being able to feed your family for five days? Like, I'm pretty sure that you would break into a store yeah. like, or something. Worse. Yeah. And that's quick. That's like two days, right? Of starvation before you become desperate. You know, I never thought of it that way that you get, that hungry and in that short a time you'd do anything to feed your family so i totally get that what about from the point of view and, and especially when we have the ukraine war going on and even there are folks that are worried that this could escalate 
What's the government's concerns about food security when it looks out and says, hmm, are we ready if we had to fight a bigger war? What are their thoughts from that point of view, Michelle? Yeah, so a lot of the food that and distribution getting to it that we you know, came up with was supported by trying in the 40s and 50s by trying to make sure that we had a population that was healthy enough and fed enough to mm-hmm. fight. There are now concerns on the other side of that with obesity rates above 35%. Do we have a physically fit enough population to support mm. a military exercise? And, you know, as technology improves, maybe you need, you know, less, you know, super strong, super healthy people, mm. but it's definitely a concern of do uh, is our obesity is our type 2 diabetes are the rest of our health problems getting in the way of us readiness mm-hmm. to be able to fight if it came to that and um you know the usda and the department of defense in the 90s um worked together, put out a joint effort where the department of defense puts produce, vegetables and fruit um, into our school system. So the extra money from fruits and vegetables for fruits and vegetables comes from the Department of Defense. Mm. Part of it was their employee, their personnel division, um, you know, trying to get the families potentially, but also just some of the logistics that you're sort of touching on that that the Department of Defense had more flexible ways to purchase food. Um, and they were already buying local produce for their bases. And so expanding that into schools gave a lot more produce access than the USDA previously had. I find that fascinating. And I was completely unaware of that. And I'll bet you most people are that the DOD is actually trying to get us to be more healthy and to eat and, and have a better diet. And when you were talking about that, it reminded me of when President Obama was in office and the First Lady Michelle Obama, and she had this campaign where she wanted kids to eat better food, more nutritious food. And as you know, it became this, as our mutual friend David Bray would say, it became a political football. Yet, I thought it was a great idea. Why didn't that work? Um. One, it became a political football, which sort of (laughs) makes it impossible from any perspective. Um, I want to say that part of it is that food is really sensitive. And I have learned in my travels around the world just how personal food is. and, And that like kind of has this visceral reaction in people. So even if it wasn't political, Mm -hmm. right? And there are a lot of, you know, lobbying and so forth that goes into it. Redesigning the food plate, you know, requires everybody from all the different quadrants of the food plate to show up and explain why their products Mm -hmm. better. And so I definitely think that there's some industry that's involved in some um, of that political discussion and winners and losers when we change these types of programs. So there's that self-vested interest. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there is just something so personal about food. And even if, as Americans, we rarely think about food that we have access to on a daily basis, and we don't think about it at all from a national security standpoint, Mm -hmm. like we have those gut reactions about somebody telling us what to eat or changing it. And so it's extra true with your kids. But so if somebody whether it's the first lady or not, says, you know what? You should have a garden. You should really eat these vegetables and less meat. You want to say, especially potentially from Texas, I'm going to eat my steak and you're not going to tell me yeah, what to Yeah, yeah, I love my Angus steak and all that, yeah. And so I think that a lot of it is we are, our food choices are cultural, they're personal, they're tied to our memories and our feelings and like, we want to be able to choose what we want to eat. And one of the things that comes up a lot, so I live near Boston in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I feel like every single one of my friends feeds their child a different milk alternative. Mm. So like whether it is, 
you know, and I've actually had to look up some of them because I haven't heard of all of them, but like whether it's oat milk or soy milk or almond yep. milk, or somebody told me last week about ripple, which is pea protein um, mm. that, that, you know, forms a milk substitute. And I went to the pediatrician. I was like, I, I was like, you know me. And like, I work in this world of agriculture and, you know, my son is drinking milk and I think it's fine. And all of my friends are pushing me in this direction. And I was like, I just, I really want to give cow's milk. Like that's just, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, you know, my experience in agriculture or, yeah. you know, whatever my reasons are. I can't even tell you, but like, I really want to give cow milk and I kind of need you to tell me it's okay. And she laughed and she said, you're really going to appreciate this. And she brought over some notepads and some other swag that the Massachusetts Dairy Association had sent her. And like, they had sent it to her office and they had sent it to her house, but like, I'm making this choice and I want to do the right thing. And my gut is really telling me that I want to give my kids cow milk and all of my friends are doing this other thing. Yeah. And there's not this, we're not going to have a rational conversation about it. And I think that's where food plays in our lives. Like you have the birthday cake at the party. You have the, you know, that first, I don't know, chestnut, whatever it is like these, are so strong in us that food is personal. So that is a perspective I have never thought about in that way. And your story about, hey, you're talking to the doctor, you love your daughter, your children dearly, you want to do the best for them. And why would you resent it if the governor, the mayor, the president was saying, oh, no, you're going to drink almond milk, which incidentally is what we drink in this house. But... <laughs> So that, and you're right there, I can think of coming home from college and my mom having, she's such a good cook and just walking into the house and those smells and you associate them with your family members who are happy to see you. So I never thought about all that. We talk about, of course, a lot of things we were going through, hey, some of the challenges and access and is it nutritional, but it is a deeply personal, there's a freedom aspect that I hadn't really thought about as well. Okay, so now that we've established, and I think very- Can we trickle yeah, that yeah. up to the national security mm -hmm. level? So so for individuals, right, food security, uh, that food choice is super personal, but I wanna say that in my travels, it is also personal at an international hmm. level, like at that government level as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worked in the seed industry, so planting mm -hmm. seeds, um, and in conversations, both in Kenya and in China, there were, you know, a lot of conversations about how great American seeds were and, you know, you should buy them. And there's this need in all of these conversations for those countries to own their own inputs, mm. right? So the same way we talk about, you know, national security in steel, right? There was this we need the inputs. We don't want to be dependent uh, on another country for the seed to grow our food. Mm -hmm. And what would that mean? And so, and you know, it was pushed back on me. If some of the largest seed companies in the world weren't American companies, how would Americans feel? Mm -hmm. Like, how would you feel as an American farmer or as the American government, not knowing if you would be able to get access to these inputs? And sometimes that goes even far enough where countries are okay with not having the best. And so I took, went with a group of seed growers, seed companies to Cuba, and they stood in these Cuban fields and said, I, ha I have only seen corn that looked like this in a textbook. We have been breeding corn for so long that when I was in school in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we, this was corn that I would have seen in textbooks from the 1920s. Huh. And they were like, if they would just buy our corn, they could have such higher yields. This would, we could change everything. And we sat in this government meeting and the government officials couldn't get through to my group that we depended on inputs from the United mm -hmm. States until the 1950s and the United States left and we had nothing. We depended on the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union left and we had nothing. We don't care if we don't grow the world's best corn. We know that we have enough food to feed our people. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And you know, as you're saying that, it reminds me in some ways, the pandemic really revealed from a supply chain point of view, how reliant that the US is on China for all kinds of things, right? Medications, technologies, hadn't thought again of what exactly you said. And as an American, I'd say there's no way. There's no way that we should be totally reliant upon other countries, whether it be Russia, China, Ukraine, whoever, for food. So from a distribution point of view, and I'm glad you kept me honest because I was so interested in the other point, but you brought us back. That gives me more insight again into just the gravity that when we're talking about you know how important food security is. So I want to shift slightly now because we've outlined some of these challenges and the, the priority challenges. So before you talked about field to mouth, so what is that? Tell us more about that. So as I was thinking about all of the places, and I I have now made a list of just the, the obvious places that food security happens, right? There is a famine. There is a crop failure. There is a disease. There is no grocery store. There's no labor to pick the food out of the field. Like some of those are really obvious. Um, and as I was working on this definition of like the availability, that quality, the nutrition, the safe, and then the demand, this access, this people, they have money, they have it like it's, it requires like some level of perfection at every single one of these steps. Hmm. Um, and so like we do need to grow food in a field, mm -hmm. right? If there is a crop disaster or if you grow in an, you know, indoor vertical farm and there's no electricity, mm -hmm. right? You have no crops. So, like some of those are obvious, but like it's all of these steps. And even if you got the food all the way to someone's house and they didn't have a stove to cook the potatoes on, are they really food secure? Mm. Like they have to be able to eat it. Or, you know, we talk about culturally appropriate and it comes up a lot. If I Americans have this idea of beggars can't be choosers, mm. like you should take what is available. And if it's not culturally appropriate and somebody's not going to eat it, they're not food secure. And a really extreme example of that is in concentration camps, Nazis gave Jews pork stews. Mm -hmm. Is that actually giving them food if they will not mm -hmm. eat it? And so it's, it's all of these places and just one break means that there's no food security. And so that's why it actually has to get into their mouth, not just on their table, not just in their restaurant, but like in their mouth to actually be food and then be healthy enough to sustain their bodies. Very uh, interesting context there. Again, hadn't thought about that. So all of those weak points from seed and access to seed to soil to weather conditions, to transportation, to refrigeration, to all, and you may go through 15 steps and then you may, you know, we joke about when our kids won't eat their vegetables, but there can be all kinds of reasons somebody may not choose to eat it. So as we look at all of that, then how do we solve that challenge and this notion of field amount? Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, um, I mean, I think, look, I think that there are a lot of different places that people are working right on. And that as much as it is, there are so many steps to get to food security. There are so many different solutions that are needed. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, you know, with the pandemic and not having, you know, embassies open and visas like the United States depends on 250,000 workers from other countries to harvest. So is technology an option to reduce that point of food security? Absolutely. Is free trade a an option to make sure that if you have a, you know, hazard here, you can buy from other places? Absolutely. Is awareness just of this whole conversation, I think, a really important point. Um, but then also, I've kind of spent the last couple of years really talking about regional food systems and putting mm. more of those pieces back in each location. And so like as somebody who 
spent a lot of time working in free trade and is now really pushing regional food systems kind of like creates this angst in me. Like, have I flip-flopped? Have I changed my story? But I think you really need both. Mm. Um, I think that you need some inputs from all over the world and you need that global safety net. But like, you also need to be able to produce your own food and package your own food. And those, I think, are places where the U.S. can spend more time, effort, infrastructure, soft infrastructure, and build out to increase individual regions. food. So at one point, you were much more just the regional. You were saying if it's coming from that long network distribution, uh-uh, no, no, I, I want to see the, the cow in my backyard. Was that sort of earlier on your point of view? Mine was actually the opposite. So my like whole foray into agriculture trade and production was that I worked in Africa for a summer uh -huh. and as a veterinary technician. And there was this farmer who trapped a leopard who was going to kill his livestock and gave it to us and said, you can relocate it. Um, and, you know, honestly, the odds of that leopard not running into another farm were right. slim. And so really as a, my, I saw that either I could save this individual or I could work in conservation and save species. Mm. And I really wanted to have more land left for wild. So I wanted us to grow food in the place where it made the most sense. Uh. So if the Midwest grows more corn per square foot with less you know, inputs than anywhere else in the world, that is where we should grow corn and we should sell it to other mm -hmm. places. If Chile can grow the best blueberries in the world, they should grow and we should all trade. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that we would then have resources left to do everything else. And that, I think, thought turned me into an economist, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, but now I see, and I think a lot of the world sees, that we have really accomplished so much inefficiency. Mm. Like the system that I described is the most efficient. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, we have really driven down food prices and increased food access all over the world. Like, yes, there are hungry people all over the mm -hmm. world, but Americans spend less than 10% of their budgets on mm -hmm. groceries or on food. And it got to 6%. And then apparently we're just willing to spend 10%. So when you get down to 6% of your budget, you start eating out right. more. Like we have spent as little as possible and like global hunger around the world is much lower. But the pandemic showed us that in that the cost of efficiency was the lack of resilience. Mm. If one if one boat gets stuck in the Suez Canal and we can't move fertilizer, like we're all in trouble. If one, you know, any of these things, if one plant in the United States shuts down and we lose five percent of our beef production, like we traded efficiency for resiliency. And when the pandemic happened and all of the schools shut down, we had millions of cartons of milk and no way to put them in and not enough gallon containers to get them to people's houses. Yeah. And that is the cost. And I don't know that that's a cost many people are willing to accept. Anymore. And now the mirage that you were talking about, I'm understanding it more deeply. It appears wow, everything is in good shape. But just as you talked about, move one little piece on the chessboard and you can have all kinds of challenges. I'll share a story with you. A couple years ago, five years ago, uh, my family and I were moving from Tucson. We love Tucson, but it was time to move on. And so we packed up the U-Haul and we're on our way and we're making our way across Interstate 10 and we go through El Paso. And somewhere after El Paso, I don't remember, Michelle, how many miles. Maybe it was 60 miles, 100 miles. I don't remember the exact place. We came upon places where all you could see were cattle. And cattle, I mean, packed together. And the smell was horrendous. And I'd never seen anything like it in my life. We had driven, you know, we were driving for miles and miles and miles. And it's all you saw. And it, I found it heartbreaking. At the time, I'm going through, I have my little dog, my little dog, Bear, and he's in the U-Haul with me. And I'm looking out at this, and 
again, I don't know, it, it, it seemed like hundreds of thousands of acres of cattle just so tightly packed in at the time. And it caused me to think it's like, gee, I'm going to pull over soon and get a, uh, you know, a Texas hamburger somewhere. And I don't even think about that. But within the context of everything you're saying, and I love the notion of the dichotomy, how you started off as an economist and then, but hmm, now I have sort of this agricultural sensibility. What's wrong with that picture of what I saw and maybe what's right with it in Texas? I mean, what's right with it is, People have, I mean, the price of meat is something that, that Americans can eat. And actually Americans eat meal, eat meat in over 21 meals mm. a week. Um, that is something that has not been possible at any other time in history. So I, it's not just Americans have gotten wealthier, but the cost of food has gone down. So people can eat meat. Um, and so that is a huge advantage. And that is the first thing. If you push back on how agriculture is done or produced or consolidation or processed or anything, the first thing somebody will tell you is that you are going to raise food prices and 40 to 50 million Americans at any time are on food assistance. Yeah. And so like they can't afford yeah. it. Even a small increase in their budget isn't possible. Mm -hmm. Um so are you going to take that away from them? So that is the first. And that's, you know, back to Michelle Obama, that's where a lot of the pushback comes from. Mm. It's great that, you know, somebody can go to my local farmer's market and buy a whole chicken that is, you know, free range, whatever, mm -hmm. for $25. But how many Americans can afford a $25 whole bird? Yeah. Like, that's just not... And there's a lot of ground in the middle. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of places in the middle. Um, but that's the first thing. If you change the system, it may get more. Expensive. Reminds me of our current energy debate. Very similar to it. But anyway, I didn't want to cut you exactly. off. But it really reminded me of that. And then on the other side, what is the cost? I mean, what is the problem with mm -hmm. that? The problem is that it's not particularly hum humane mm -hmm. or may not be humane. Um, you have concerns about um, biosecurity, right? Those livestock, those cows are together. Mm. They can get sick. They could, you know, potentially get very sick. I talked with um, a veterinarian who did his AAAS fellowship at the Department of Defense, and that was one of his biggest concerns. Mm. You're taking those cows from, you know, Texas or Arizona up to to uh, Colorado to be processed. Like they are all together, just like a daycare. They're probably all getting sick or might all be getting mm -hmm. sick. You're putting them in a high stress situation when you drive them and you're moving them across the country. Mm -hmm. Like if one of those livestock gets sick, could we have a serious biosecurity concern? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then there's the you get the efficiencies of scale of all having them in one place, but that means that you need to truck in a lot of yeah. food and you have to truck out a lot of manure because the environment can't produce enough locally to feed all those animals mm -hmm. and it can't manage the waste from all of those yeah. animals. So whatever you saved in production costs, you might, you know, you have these other problems that have been created. You know, when you mentioned biosecurity, I think maybe three years ago, the average American would have said, yeah, whatever, yawn, we're good. Now, of course, as we have endured and lived through COVID, I would be very interested. I'll bet you if you pulled folks, all of a sudden that issue would have much more sensitivity as far as everything that you just so ably talked about and how, wow, it could make you sick and could cause a problem that could be worse than what we've dealt with in COVID. You talked about inputs before, and we're having this discussion on efficiency. And it seems to me that if we're eating 21 meals a week that have meat within it, and we're talking about the amount of drain that is on the land, right? The amount of grazing that the cattle have to do and all of the, when we're feeding them and the watering and then the waste and all of that, it's got to put much more of a burden than if we were eating salads, perhaps, and food that was truly 
you know, it, it naturally grown. Like when I lived in Arizona, there were things that we were growing out there like cotton and other things where I said, whoa, this doesn't line up. So in your view, is there an ethical side of this? When we think about the planet, when we think about sustainability, that we say, wow, maybe we don't need all of that meat. We'd love to get your thoughts on the ethics of it. So this is the giant political football in my head. So way to dive straight straight to the point. Um, Look, I think that like 30% of the corn acres are going to feed a cow, right? That we're going to eat. Does that take more resources? Yes. But lettuce has no nutritional value Mm. in it, right? It doesn't have any calories in it. So I don't know that the acres per acre argument is the best in my Mm. head. Like, I think that that we need to eat more diverse diets. I think we need to eat less meat and more of these other, you know, grains and things that are healthy for us. I also think that livestock are an important part of the system at some level. Like, livestock are upcyclers. I, you know, they eat things that we don't, Mm. right? Mm. And so in... One of cow's favorite snacks is grapefruit rinds. So after grapefruits are squeezed and turned into juice, they need to go somewhere. Like cows eat that. It's not just that they turn food that we could eat into a value-added product, Uh right? They add, they eat things that we don't. They eat bone meal. They eat feather meal. They eat the leftover parts. And so taking livestock out altogether, we lose a home for some of those Mm -hmm. products. We also, they do, if they are in, not in a place where you have 40,000 cows all standing next to each other, but if you had them, like, you know, cattle are an important part of a range ecosystem. Mm -hmm. They, you know, step on the ground and turn things up and they deposit fertilizer all over the place. And so this abundance in one place is a problem, but taking livestock out of the equation altogether, I don't think solves the problem. So interesting. And the nuance that you're bringing to it, because I studied environmental science in college. Now that was back in the nineties, early nineties, but Back then it was, oh, this is just bad. It's too much on the planet, yet you're providing other ways to think about it. Now, if and through this discussion of food security and a lot of the issues that are going on, what I'm kind of hearing is, wait a second, we shouldn't all maybe just go back to the family farm and have a cow and so forth, that that's not perhaps a good idea, sustainable as well. And certainly may not bring the resiliency and the amount of food we need to folks from a national security point of view and all of that. But if we could, Cliff often likes to say when we're working through questions and we're preparing, he says, okay, Eric, but what if, what if Michelle could wave a magic wand, right? What would the regulations or policies for America, when we talk about food security, and this is just you with a magic wand, what you'd want to do. What would you put in place? And I get that we're throwing out our democratic system and now you're becoming a benevolent <laughs> dictator, but what would you put in place? So for so for me, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the work I do right now is there is something in the you know value chain on the farm we don't like, and somebody wants to pay money to change it. So mm. we don't want to be growing alfalfa and cotton in the Colorado River Basin because it requires too much money and we want to, or sorry, requires too mm-hmm. much water. We want to grow something else. And so like where I come in is I look at what that means to the farmer and why they grow alfalfa and what it would take to shift Mm. behavior. And a lot of what it takes to shift behavior is they have to have places to sell stuff. Mm. And so what my magic policy pieces would be to facilitate some of this middle of the value chain like not the farm doesn't necessarily need to be changed not the grocery store but like we need to support having this soft and hard infrastructure that that is designed for 
mid-scale processing, mid-scale agriculture, mid-scale mm -hmm. something. And I really don't want to define mid-scale because I don't think it's possible. But like we need something that is smaller than, you know, 10 acres of diverse vegetable and three cows. Like that is not going to feed the population. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite is, you know, the 40,000 dairy cows in Arizona next to all of the lettuce produced in the country. And so something in the middle where you have, you know, a miller, there is, mm. so back to the Arizona project, right? Growing some grains was an option. So I met somebody who wants to grow grains. He grows grains in Arizona. He sends them to Washington state to be milled. Mm -hmm. And then sends them to L.A. to be put into food. Like if we want that diverse agriculture in Arizona, mm -hmm. right, we need somewhere to mill in the state and we need somebody that knows how to mill. Mm -hmm. And like that person is doesn't exist anymore. My dad and grandfather owned a butcher mm. shop, I guess, in Florida and very traditional, they brought down the four main cuts of like used to process meat, right? You'd kill the meat and then you'd cut it into these four big parts. And my dad would buy the four parts and then he'd cut them into your, your steaks or mm -hmm. whatever it is mm -hmm. that you were making. You'd grind your beef. He had six to 10 butchers in his shop at any time. I am not convinced there are six to 10 people in the state of Florida right now that could wow. do that. So like, not just do we need a mill. But we need somebody who knows how to run the mill. And I honestly think that this mid tier, mid, you know, size is so critical mm. and has so much potential because you're growing multiple crops or having livestock on your farm, mm -hmm. which one requires more labor, um, which creates jobs. And then you have to have this mill and you have to have somebody run the mill, which also creates jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, and the distribution. So from an economic perspective, especially in rural places, like having diverse agriculture requires more people, which is good for the economic stability. Mm -hmm. um, having diverse agriculture is better for the environment. If you are growing lots of different crops, the crops naturally add things to the soil that other ones take away. They disrupt bugs mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. pests. And so you're reducing the amount of inputs that you need so much better for the environment and you're producing food for people to eat and whether that is in a rural place where you know they're growing all this corn and don't have something to mm -hmm. eat or in a city you're now producing more food close by and if something happens mm. um you have access i mean that's the vertical farms in new york city had a great selling point hurricane sandy hit new york mm. And there were no trucks that got in. And the only place you could get lettuce was from people growing it on the rooftops. Like, yeah, disruptions happen. Yeah. And so when you talk about this mid-tier, mid-scale, I get why you don't want to put an exact number. It would be so hard to know exactly what the size of it should be. Yet, when I think about it, and I'll share with you a little example, we had recently... Dr. Panchanathan, and he is the director of the National Science Foundation, and he had this idea, has this idea, this vision that across the United States, he wants to see innovation centers. He wants to see if it's an area of agriculture, if it's an area in Silicon Valley of technology, if it's an area of we're talking about shipbuilding or, you know, uh, fishing. And within that, one could imagine rapid innovation, collision, but quickly learning from experimentation. Would that be something, would that be something from a policy point of view that we could perhaps do? You know, if we're looking at that regulation and so forth, that we actually do some of these experiments to try to figure out per area, what would the mid-tier be? Really curious your thoughts on that. I definitely think that it's something that you could experiment with and start to hone. I also think that it's going to be different mm -hmm. in different industries. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that agriculture is super fortunate in that the United States created the land grants in the 1850s, which do public research on agriculture topics mm -hmm. um, and they share it. And so I think that's been an interesting thing as more private money 
has entered or ag tech in the more recent iteration has become popular is there's not this sharing of information, especially of basic research that the land grants do. Um, and so you you are forced when you have private money, mm-hmm. there are times when there it is all people have to learn the same lessons individually. And so the strength of agriculture and why honestly we've gotten as far as we have since the 1800s is every state got a land grant university in part to invest in agriculture and engineering and keep pushing these ideas and the ideas that are not profitable for a company to do like one company does not want to sequence the wheat genome which didn't get finished until a couple of years ago because it helps everybody else and it's not particularly profitable but our public institutions do so I would support more funding for ag public research. Another light bulb, and this is probably about the eighth or ninth light bulb that you've helped me go off for me today. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and I used to drive up at Penn State University, and I would see these fields all over the place. That's exactly what you're talking about. And I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I just thought, okay, it's our state university. They're interested in agriculture. Didn't understand the foundational pillars behind that. So I feel, and they do everything from crop budgets. If you were gonna, you know, if you didn't know how to decide what your farm was going to be profitable, you could get a crop budget. You can get seeds. You can get technical advice. There's, you know, grants like that. Is the USDA is interesting in government agencies that they serve farmers. They produce resources that help farmers, and these state extensions, mostly through the universities do research that people want Mm -hmm. and to help move those businesses forward. Such a nuanced and fascinating conversation. My last question for you, and I feel like we could talk about a lot of these topics you could go deeper and deeper and deeper into, and I hope that you'll come back and that we can do that. Even the state university system and and the federal land (laughs) grant, that's, that's amazing to me. What can the average person do, right? Because we, of course, live in a world right now where the the unprecedented prosperity, amount of food, yet there are challenges that you have walked through. As an individual person, what should we be thinking about? What perhaps should we all do just to make food more accessible to folks, more nutritious, and to improve our food security? I mean, I think that awareness is the Mm. first piece of it. This, we take food for granted. We take that it is available. We take that it is affordable. We take for granted that we can eat out of season foods, right? We don't think as a population where our food comes Mm -hmm. from. And so I just think that's the first step is not taking the magic of everything that happens before your Mm -hmm. plate for granted. And maybe even putting it in perspective, like I know that there's a lot of concerns about chemicals or different things that individuals are concerned about. And I'm not saying that they're right or wrong. I am saying that when I went to China, people would ask me to bring baby food because they did not feel comfortable or they were not convinced that what they could buy in the store was safe. And I didn't have a child at that point, but like, I cannot imagine Mm -hmm. that. So like just understanding this conversation we're having on some level that like it is hard to make food mm-hmm. like it is hard to grow food it is hard to process livestock it is hard to these are hard jobs and a lot of americans don't want them which you know creates this problem mm-hmm. but we have these options like you once you understand a little bit about how hard it is to produce food and how lucky we Mm -hmm. are then you can start to take the next step and think about what works for your family is it eating slightly less meat is it buying from a local farmer's market is it you know, supporting policies that encourage universities to mm. buy local food is like, they're all things that we as individuals can do. And I think will help. But you I, I just feel like for each family, it is different. If you make 
$50,000 a year and are feeding a family of four, I do not expect you to buy $7 eggs. Mm -hmm. Like that is not it. But can you substitute slightly more beans or can you, Mm -hmm. you know, figure out how to use double up food box at your local, you know, farmer's market? Like those are the things that I think about. From an awareness and a providing perspective, Michelle, I would just say so well done. Whether it's from Michelle Obama, I thought, hey, good idea. Let's get kids to eat in a better way, more healthy. Yet, I hadn't thought about, hey, I don't want somebody telling me what I'm supposed to eat. From a nuance of the food system and the weak points, et cetera. Now, what I want to do, because we really appreciate you coming on the show, is for folks that want to learn more about this, that they say, wow, I hadn't thought about any of this. You are a fellow podcaster. Where can they and how can they join your podcast to learn much more about these issues and to dig even deeper? Um, So I would say the best place to find me is LinkedIn. Uh, I'm the most active on Mm -hmm. there. So just LinkedIn slash Michelle Klieger. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have a podcast. It's called The Grower and The Economist. And I have teamed up with a grower and a researcher. And we talk about what small and and medium-sized um, producers need and what tools they have to survive. Um, so sharing knowledge on that smaller end of the supply chain to support those regional food systems. Um, and I am happy to answer any questions that people have or continue the debate um, over email Michelle at stratagerm.com. Very, very cool. And, and listeners, I would welcome you again to check out The Grower and The Economist and the reach out to Michelle as well. Michelle, it has been very interesting and engaging talking with you today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love, I think it's probably clear, I love talking about all of these. So anybody that wants to listen, I am happy to talk to. Awesome. Thanks again, Michelle. Bye. If you are like me, you learned a lot during this conversation with Michelle. I never thought about Michelle Obama and that food initiative in the same way. I knew back then people were arguing over it. I thought, hey, it's a good idea. I hadn't thought about the freedoms and how personal food is to us and the cultural aspects. Another thing I hadn't thought about is it's so similar to the energy debate. When you start to talk about the reforms, there are prices, there are costs in access, in the amount that you'll pay, in the quality of nutrition. No matter what you do, it is a chessboard. Very interesting perspective and perspective is key. That's what Michelle brought us an awareness. Didn't claim to have all the answers, but I must tell you, I'll be thinking more about myself, my family, and the food choices that we make after this discussion. As always, hit us up on social media. Let us know what you think. This is a very interesting topic to discuss. A lot of gray areas would love to get your thoughts. And my last comment, and this is something that I will be working on, is working to more deeply understand these issues instead of being enticed to the extremes so easily. As I listen to Michelle, there are no easy answers. It will take very thoughtful approaches to better our food security position. And that's going to require that we all keep being different. GovCon Different. Ideas from the outside applied to GovCon to drive change. It's like TED Talks meets the federal space. Different ideas from different industries, uncovered, unvarnished, and smashed together to produce change in the government space. Join us as we explore a world of GovCon possibilities.